Amen. As you're finding your seat, if you would, go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Acts chapter 20. This morning, we're going to look at one verse, and we're going to sort of launch from that into a discussion. If you're our guest, you will know, or you will not know, you'll, you'll be coming to find out that our normal pattern is that we will work straight through books of the Bible systematically. And we've taken just a, a brief pause from that here at the beginning of the year to work through six weeks of discussions of kind of our church, just the layout of our theology, uh, the layout of who we are and what we do. This is the, this is the second message in our what we do uh, section, and then we're moving on to part three next week. And you'll see part three on the slides, uh, so don't let that confuse you. Evidently, we've had a little jumble with the slides this morning. You may have noticed that a couple times, and that's just fine. Can I put you all at ease? Uh, we, we don't aim to be performance perfect, right? So we, we want to be excellent. We don't want to confuse you. But also, you, I love that you don't stress out when that kind of thing happens. It's all all right, we catch our breath and we move right on uh, with, with what we're doing. But the Word of God stands sure, and so today we'll actually be in, in Acts chapter 20. We're going to look at this 28th verse, and then we're going to have a discussion about the way that, that Basswood Church uh, deals with leadership in the church. The way that we deal with leadership, was it an important question for us all to reckon with? And can I just give you one heads up? You're two weeks out from starting a new series here. In two weeks, Lord willing, we'll begin the Gospel of Matthew. It's a good time for you over the next couple of weeks maybe to pull it up either in, the, in, a, in a Bible app or uh, on, on some internet connected thing that can read it to you uh, and, or re- pull out your paper Bible and read the words on the page and just work your way through really quickly a brief overview of Matthew. Just work your way through so that when we begin in a couple of weeks, you'll already be ready. You'll hit the ground running with us. Uh, so, if you found your place, I'm going to go ahead and, and read for us from Acts chapter 20, verse 28, where the Bible says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. This is the word of the Lord. We're so thankful that the Lord has thought to care for his people in such a way as he has. He has done a wonderful job. There are a couple of, of, uh, of historic moments I want to contrast for you real briefly. You may remember on January 15th in 2009 when U.S. Airways Flight 1549 took off from LaGuardia Airport and famously ran into a flock of geese that took out both engines. And then the now famous Sully Sullenberger landed that airplane in the Hudson River, the chilly waters of the Hudson River, right there, a little soft landing, put that, put that airplane down right there in the water. One of the things you may not remember from that event is that he's actually sort of famous, heroic in a sense, because as he got everybody out of the plane, he actually made sure that he was the last person out. He, he walked up and down the aisles two or three times, checked the plane by himself as the last one in before the plane uh, finally was, was, uh, was, found its way into the water uh, and, and under. Well, three years after that, almost to the date, almost to the date, January 13th, 2012, there was a massive Italian cruise ship named the Costa Concordia, and it had a little bit of a different fate. It crashed into some rocks and started to sink. And upon investigation, what was determined was that the cause of the ship's crash was the ship's captain. His name was Francesco Chattini, 
And he was busy trying to impress a young woman who'd come into the helm to, to speak to him and to see what he did up there. And he veered too close to the rocks, caught the rocks, and that ship carrying 4,000 plus souls began to list and then began to sink, eventually leading to the death of 33 people. Now, what the investigation also found out was that the captain, in the midst of that, was one of the first people off the boat. He found his way to a lifeboat, found his way into the water and began to take off. And the, the, the coast guard there uh, saw that and began to call back to him to get back on the boat. He was found guilty of manslaughter and sentenced to prison for leaving his post. I think that's an appropriate thing. And that, in that time of, of confusion, there was a leader needed and there wasn't one there. Good leadership is vital for the health of any group, any organization, whether that's a nation, whether that's a business, whether that's a home, whether that's a church, where you find good leaders, you find hope and possibility and flourishing, and where you find careless or selfish leaders, you find frustration and brokenness, you find self-centeredness and infighting. And in the world right now, I think you probably would agree with me, we're in sore need of good leaders everywhere. It's been said that ideas have consequences and that bad ideas have victims. That's true. But I think the same can be said in application to the way that leadership works. That all leaders come with consequences and bad ones come with victims. In fact, the Bible sort of gives this idea in one translation of Proverbs 29, 18, where it says, where there is no vision, the people perish. Leadership makes a big difference. But I think this, in our day, the word leadership has taken on what some people call semantic overload. It's, it's become so fraught with different interpretations that it almost is hard to define at all. It almost means nothing because we try to fit it into every hole. Sometimes being a leader just means being the big boss. That's what everybody thinks of. Uh, or maybe having all the answers or getting all the credit. Being at top of the hill or never showing a vulnerability or never changing course. Having charisma, enough charisma to get other people to do what you want them to do. Leadership has a lot of baggage attached to it, the way that we use it in the world today. In fact, it's got so much baggage that I fear that we've become suspicious of all leadership. That we've, become, we've come to a place where we begin, as soon as somebody seems to be in, in a role of authority or leadership, we immediately come to suspect them. I would just contend for a Christian with, with, with their Bible open, with an open heart before the Lord, a posture of permanent suspicion of all leadership is not consistent with what we find in the Bible. In fact, I'm just going to throw out there at the very beginning that God designed the world to function in a specific way. And, and that there's a, a role of submission and authority that runs its way all the way through the world, whether we like it, admit it or not, it is there. It functions that way. So when we sort of push back, when we, when we shove back at that, we're shoving back at the nature of a world that is. In fact, for, for a Christian to say, I, I just, I can't find myself submitted to authority, that would be an oxymoron, you know that, right? You can't call Jesus Lord and at the same time say, I don't really have any authorities in my life. Those two can't go together. 
So we wanna come in low and hear what the word of God has to say about authority, its nature, about leadership. We won't be able to do every single thing, a comprehensive treatment, but we do want to uh, carefully exposit what we, what we have uh, in front of us in scriptures, give some of the implications for our church, how this ought to be worked out or how we do in this particular church. There are lots of ideas about how this ought to be worked out in church. Some are great, some not so great, and there are consequences for all of them. And so we want to lay our cards on the table and explain where we are so that you can understand where we get that in God's word. I've got three stops for us this morning as we work our way through the text. These are the questions that I hope will help you navigate the question of how uh, leadership works at Basswood in the body. The first, I want to just take a stop and ask the question, what is biblical leadership? What is biblical leadership? Second, how does that work at Basswood? What does leadership look like at Basswood? And then third, what does that look like practically? How will that affect those who are part of our church? So first, let's ask the question, what is leadership? It's important to have a functional understanding of that if you're going to apply that to a specific setting. And you know that the biblical picture of leadership is not much like the world's picture of leadership. There are large gaps and differences. It's not the few who have the the levers of control or domination. In fact, the, the biblical picture that we receive repeatedly is that leadership is stepping up sacrificially. That's the nature of leadership. It's to step up sacrificially. It's to step in at great cost to yourself. It's being the one who owns the responsibility For the best outcome, it's not being the one who gets to boss others around or sit in the seat of privilege. In fact, sometimes people notice the way you lead, but I'm going to argue a lot of times if you're doing it well, people won't necessarily always notice what you're doing. They won't necessarily praise you for what you're doing. If you need their praise, we'll just start with the premise that if you need the praise of others to feel like you're doing a good job, you're probably not a very good leader yet. doesn't mean you can't be just means you're probably not there. We lead others for their good. We don't lead them for their praise. So a biblical description of leadership is rooted in love. The big idea behind leadership is love, and I'm gonna draw that out from the scriptures for us, Uh, but we we want to be plain that the Bible does not see leadership the way that the world does. We get our model of leadership from Jesus Christ himself. The Lord Jesus set a standard of leadership that we as Christians, men and women, will follow in all that we do, in every arena that we step into. In the sphere that God has you leading in, in that sphere, your leadership needs to look like the leadership of Jesus and the way that he described it. Listen to the way that he spoke. In Matthew chapter 20, we'll probably get to that, I don't know, in 2025 or somewhere beyond that. But Jesus said, he called them and said to them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. And there's kind of a domination meant and intended behind the way that Jesus said that. They exercise that authority. They, 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 they press it down. Their great ones exercise authority over them. And listen to what he said to his disciples. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
When you start thinking about what leadership is and you look to Jesus, when Jesus defined leadership explicitly to his disciples, he defined it as taking a lower seat and serving those around you. There's there's love written all through there, a love for God that shows up in a love for others that says, I will serve your greater good by taking the lower seat. And isn't that exactly what Jesus did to his disciples while he was on earth? You remember as they gathered in the room together there right before he heads up to Gethsemane, right before that, he gathers them in one place in John 13. And these men with stinky, dirty feet, he pulls them together. The master pulls his cloak off, gets a basin of water, a towel, girds his loin like a servant, gets down on the floor, gets their dirty feet, and begins to clean them. And when he tells them what he's doing, why in the world are you doing this, Jesus? Why would you do this? You remember... King Hosanna, you're the king of kings, all the things that are happening in his life. And you think, why is the king of kings on his hands and knees clean and dirty feet? Jesus had an answer in John 13, verses 12 through 17. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If then... Your Lord and teacher have washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant's not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. He says, if, if you really are submitted to me, a life of submission to me means sacrificial love that cares for the good of others, even to the point of dirty feet getting washed. That's what leadership looks like in the Bible. That does not sound like what the world looks for leadership for. It's not the picture of the CEO on the webpage with the shiny, glossy headshot. It's the one who got down on his knees and said, I'll clean up your mess. I care enough about you, I'm gonna get down here with you. That's what leadership looks like from Jesus' point of view. In the church, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4, in fact, that that all of the, the leaders that God gives to the church have a purpose, and the purpose is the building up of the body. The purpose of the leaders are not to be seen as leaders, it's to build the body up. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 14, Paul wrote, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, what for, Paul? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. So, the, wait, hold on. You mean the staff wasn't supposed to do the ministry? No. No, it turns out in the Bible, it's not the, 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 the teachers and the preachers that are doing the ministry. It's, it's the saints that are doing the ministry. And, and the teachers and preachers are there to equip them and, and to help them and to serve them, to build them up as they use their gifts in the body. Until we all attain the unity of the faith to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may be no longer children tossed around to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness of deceitful schemes. Do you see there is a bottom-up approach here that has an impact on the body? Everybody's growing 
Because the leaders took the low place and said, I'll I'll serve you, I'll equip you, I'll prepare you, I'll work with you, even in your brokenness, that you might be able to serve the body. In fact, the primary text for the qualifications of leaders in the Bible, we'll get to those in just a moment, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, emphasize, they, they emphasize the character of a man who loves God and loves others. It shows up in all he does. Ultimately, biblical leadership is characterized by a selfless commitment to other people. So contrary to the world's emphasis on power or on authority, biblical leadership underscores humility comes from a place of humility and selfless service. We read it, the, the version in Matthew, but in Mark 10, we get Jesus saying the exact same thing. It's just a, from a different vantage point. He says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The world applauds those who get success and achievement at any cost. And Jesus says, the one who deserves all the praise didn't come to be served. He came to be a servant. And so leadership looks just like that. Leadership is not just about the external praise, the authority, the power, the success, the achievement at any cost. In the Bible, leadership has a lot more to do with a love of God worked out in a life given to other people. So much so that we care about the way that we live. You remember Psalm 78, verse 72, speaks of David. David shepherded them with integrity of heart and with skillful hands he led them. The Bible cares more about what's going on on the inside than what everybody thinks about what's going on on the outside. I think there's a lot that could be said here about biblical leadership. Maybe we ought to note that biblical leadership looks like a trust in God rather than a trust in means or a trust in outcomes. So we do care about outcomes, we do care about means, but that's not what we trust. We're trusting the Lord. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6 tell us, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. So every Christian, every single Christian, this is our call as we obey the Lord, is to trust him, not leaning on our understanding, but in everything that we do, to acknowledge him and to trust that he's going to work out the path for us. He'll make the path straight We do know that the Lord cares about what we do and how we do it. In Luke 12, verse 48, there's an accountability, and this is for all Christians everywhere. In whatever sphere you're called to lead in, Luke 12 tells you, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. From him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Friends, I just want to start our conversation today by saying, if your idea of leadership begins with the word boss, you're starting in the wrong place. It starts with the word servant. And that leadership is not about power or glory, and that's not just in the church, that's in civil government, that's in your house. Your definition of leadership begins with the idea that others need to obey you because you've got it right or something like that. If that's where you start your definition, I'm going to argue you need to back up from that for a moment. Look to the master and say, Lord Jesus, how did you show what leadership looked like in my home, in our nation, in this church? What should a leader start with? Jesus argued that we start at the bottom. We start by serving others. Biblical leadership is ultimately an expression of love. That's what it's meant to be. 
It's meant to be an overflow of love that God has so loved me and placed people around me who need, so in my home, they need a dad who loves them enough to do what's right and lead them well. That is loving. They don't just need to be dominated. They need to be loved. And that love is gonna work it out in, itself out in practical ways. And there are gonna be boundaries that I've gotta set up as a dad. And there are gonna be ways that I've gotta teach and lead and step in. But all of those things are motivated from love. Not one of those things are because I said so. Leadership in the Bible starts with love. And if you don't start there, you really have started in the wrong place. It's just, it, it is all about an expression of love. It, it's a kind of ownership of responsibility. I, I, I was reminded of, you remember A Bug's Life? This, this movie, this, the little kid's movie? And there's the bad guy that's Hopper, and he shows up. He's the, the kind of the, the, um, the locust or whatever. He shows up, and he's, he's talking to the little princess aunt, and he says to her when he finds out she's in charge, and he says something to the effect of, the first rule of leadership is that everything is your fault. <laughs> right? That's where he starts. And it, it reminded me, like, he's channeling his inner Jocko Willink about extreme ownership, and he's saying, you know, this, this is all, you've got to own this. But there's a heart behind biblical leadership that says, I love you so much. I, I, want, I, I want to do everything I can. I want to pour myself out for you. And that's what leadership starts with. It does not start with, okay, where's my desk? Do I get an office window that looks good? And, and who says yes to me? Biblical leadership really does begin with love. Every single Christian in whatever sphere you are called to lead in. So we will all have different spheres that we, that the Lord appoints us to serve him in. And that service is just leadership. Whatever that sphere is, every Christian is called to do that the way that Jesus calls us to do it. So we are called to that biblical description. That's where I'm going to start the discussion. So how does something like that work itself out practically in a church? How then do we actually see that unfold? And I'm going to give you kind of a lengthy definition that we worked out years ago that began this discussion for us to just throw the cards on the table. We believe at Basswood, we believe that God entrusts the oversight of his church to a plurality of called, examined, qualified, and accountable men who are duty-bound to provide care, direction-setting, and decision-making for the body. I know that was faster than you could write. I'll say it again because I want you to hear it. It's not as important that you write it down right this second. I can give it to Ronnie. Maybe you can stick it in the email or something. But you want to understand it, not just write it down. Listen, God entrusts the oversight of his church to a plurality of called, examined, qualified, accountable men who are duty-bound to provide care, direction setting and decision making for the body. We believe this is how the Bible instructs a church to function in terms of leadership. So the, the key question that we sort of backed up from when we really began to think all this through is according to the Bible, who is God going to hold accountable for the leadership of the church? You just had a Bible to answer that question. And before you answer it, you, you might consider the fact that we live in a kind of confused time when it comes to leadership. We live in the 21st century in the United States. And in the 21st century in the United States, we live in a very hyper-individualistic culture. <laughs> the idea of linking your life to a whole bunch of other people feels foreign. Like it doesn't feel normal. We don't see a lot of examples around of that where people who aren't blood relatives link their lives together for a cause. But the Bible shows exactly that. It shows a, the 
church is a family, in fact, of brothers and sisters living uh, in union under Christ's leadership. So, so that, that idea can be a stretch for us because we frequently just think of our isolated self instead of our relationship to a larger body. But that's not the only thing that makes it confusing for us. I think we are living in a moment where it's easiest to just either idolize or criminalize leaders of all kinds. We're living in a two-bucket moment, right? You're either the good guy or the bad guy. And if you're the good guy, I like everything you ever wrote. Can I sign up for your service? You know, you're the good guy, right? And if you're the bad guy, then all I do is talk bad about you. But the world is not necessarily just like that, right? I mean, there are good guys and bad guys, but that's not the way that we think. There, there, everyone in this room comes with brokenness and frailty. Every human does. And it's a lot harder than we think. But with leadership particularly, we think, which team are you on? Which jersey do you wear? How do I sort this out in my brain? And am I for you or against you? And that'll confuse this issue if you deal with humans as they really are. Instead, it becomes a lot more, uh, you, you, to use biblical discernment is what we're called to, uh, not just this sort of two-bucket mentality. Another issue that I think confuses a lot of churches, um, this I think was probably the pattern for us years and years ago, not so much in these most recent years. There are a lot of churches that confuse what a deacon is with what an elder is. If you grew up in a church like I did, the deacons were the elders, right? And so that sort of, they were synonymous to each other and they, they sort of replaced each other and they were, the deacons were the people who were in charge as opposed to seeing the deacons as the men who are ably equipped to care for the practical needs of the church and the elders are the ones who are leading and setting the vision and directing things in the church. And so we would see two offices, of an office of deacon and an office of elder, and the elders are the ones who lead and direct, and the, the deacons are the ones who serve. And we are so blessed at Basswood to have all kinds of wonderful deacons who are helping, and we want to pray the Lord will continue to, to cause them to prosper and flourish. But there are lots of churches where that is really confused, and it makes it hard to know. What, if, if we're not dealing with elders, then what, who, to whom do those qualifications apply? Right? And so it becomes a little bit mixed up. So we want to understand what the Bible teaches about this. And so Basswood has worked hard to, to, to work this out in practical ways. Today I'm going to give you four principles under this heading. Four principles and then two applications. Okay, So four principles and then two applications. The first principle that I want us to get under our belt, besides the fact that we need to know what leadership actually is, is this. In the church, Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd. You must start with whose church this is. You'll, you won't often hear Ronnie and I speak in terms of, you know, at our church, at, at, this is my church, or over at my church, we, that, that, we both have this little, little red flag that pops up in our head. Uh, we, we might say something like the church where we pastor or something like that, but, but the whole notion of kind of a possessiveness, it, this church belongs to Jesus. This church, he is the chief shepherd. We begin with a recognition that Jesus is the head of the church and you can't start a discussion of leadership in the church in some other place or you're going to end up in a bad spot. And that's not merely some kind of theoretical sense, but it's in the ultimate and the actual sense. The church belongs to Jesus. He is the great shepherd, John 10, who laid his life down for the sheep. When Peter talked to the pastors in chapter five of his epistle, he told them that they were to await the coming of the chief shepherd, the one who's actually the owner of the church. When, when Paul talked, spoke to Titus, he told the pastors that they were stewards. They, they, were, they were the caretakers, almost under shepherds of what God, the chief, Jesus, the chief shepherd is doing. So we begin with the big reality that the church belongs to Jesus, which means this, we're not free to invent our own systems. We're, we're not free to make it up as we go. The church doesn't belong to us. 
It's not purely some kind of how would this work best in a pragmatic way. We have to go to the one whose church it is if we're, going to, if we're going to make the church work the way it ought to work. Jesus has to be in charge of everything and everyone in his church. Well, the second big principle is this. All authority is derived authority. I'm gonna have to explain this just a little bit. God's authority, I mentioned this up front, authority is built into the fabric of the universe. You don't have to like that. I don't really care if you like that. It's just true. Authority is built into the fabric of the universe. It's like gravity or, or molecules. It doesn't care that you love it or hate it. It is. Authority is built into the fabric of the universe. And every legitimate authority derives from God's authority. He is the giver of all authority. When Jesus said, all authority on heaven and on earth have been given to me, he wasn't being hyperbolic. He wasn't speaking in grandiose poetic terms. He is the authority over everything. And so every authority on earth that is a legitimate authority is borrowing or deriving or downstream from the authority of Jesus. They are stewarding the authority they've been given. Every authority. That's the authority in a national government. That's authority in a church. That's an authority of a dad, the authority of a mom. It's the authority in a business. Any legitimate authority is borrowing on God's authority and will be accountable for the way that they used their authority. Abraham Kuyper, one of my heroes, said, God's authority is exercised in two ways. First, directly and immediately. That word immediate becomes, we think of it as like in time, like immediately now. That, that, that is based on the idea of a mediator. And this is without, immediately, immediately, like without a mediator. So it is, it is there, there are two kinds of authorities God shows. First, directly and without a mediator over creatures without a soul. In other words, God providentially controls all things in the universe. Like over all, all of nature is under God's control and there's no mediator between him and his control. And then he says this, the second way that God shows his authority is mediately through human beings as instruments and therefore as an authority that is derived and conferred, and he said, being manifested first in paternal and maternal authority. Moms and dads should know this right out of the gates. You should know that when you speak to your children and you say it's not good to lie, that you're not just saying that because you think it's not good to lie. You're saying that because the God who created all of us said it's not good to lie. You should not lie. And when you say that, you're not speaking because I said so. Your said so comes from God's truth. You are being a mediator of God's authority in your home. And you are accountable for the way that you use that authority always. So in speaking with God's authority, we are being stewards of that. So all authority is derived authority civil authority, family authority, church authority. It's derivative. The church belongs to Jesus. The authority belongs to Jesus. It is his. And every legitimate authority on earth, no matter what role it is and what role it's in, is derived from the Lord. So that's the second principle. The third principle is this. This is where it works itself out into the word of God. We're gonna draw from heavily uh, when, we, when we describe why we build our authority structure the way we do. The, the church is led by elders, who are called, qualified, and accountable men. And all those words matter. 
Jesus is the chief authority who entrusts his authority to members of his flock to shepherd and to help lead them. So the Lord, in his word, gets to tell us how it is that that authority, how that, how that leadership structure is to be worked out. So we need to carefully consider what he says about the way that it works out. The first thing he tells us is what the men are, what they ought to be like who are leaders. First Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Listen with a discerning ear. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office, he desires a noble task. Just encourage some men out there. That desires a good thing. He desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." He continued a very similar theme in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, where he says, this is why I left you in Crete. Here's why I left you there. So that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So you see, that's a, that is a list right there. Unless any man who is, is thinking, like, maybe the Lord would use me. Like you've, you face that list and you think, that's huge. It is huge. It is huge. But this is all in reliance on the Lord. Many who are set apart are called by the body, and they are qualified according to Scripture. And these texts tell us what these men are to be like. And so as a church, when, when, when the day comes when we bring in other elders, we always want to use these standards as the, as the standards. But they're not only called and equipped and, and uh, qualified, they're also accountable. There's a structure built into the whole system of accountability for the elders. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Here's this statement about the goodness of elders. But then what happens when they go rogue or when, something, when they break their covenant or when they, when they are the ones who are actually stepping out of faithfulness? Well, here's what you do. Verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So there's a process in place to actually hold elders accountable 
And not only that, there's a motive for the, pro- for the process that Paul gives. As for those who persist in sin, if there's an elder who upon witnesses coming and making a charge against the man, continued in their sin. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. There's an example to be made where the whole flock would understand. It matters how you live. It matters how you live. The authority that God gives as to, to these men as stewards comes with an accountability structure built into it. They can't just do whatever they want. If they're not good shepherds, there's actually biblical ways to handle that. But also these men are called by the body. They are qualified according to scripture. They are accountable and they are men. It's part of our definition on purpose. First Timothy chapter two, verses eight through 12. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, and likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not braided, not with braided hair or gold pearls or costly attire. It's not the outside that we're looking at, but with what is proper for a woman who professed godliness with good works. Then he says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, just reading that out loud, there are probably people in here who are like, whoa, man, you're going to read that verse, huh? I'm just going to throw that right out here in public. Yes, because we believe the Bible is good for us. We believe it has truth in it. We don't believe it's oppressive. We don't believe that it's meant to harm. We believe this is good and beautiful and glorious. And if if reading the Bible out loud ever makes us uncomfortable, Lord, help us. Lord, help us if that becomes who we are. It says something about our hearts, not about the goodness of what we've read. Now, now, there are all kinds of ways that are crass and insensitive and rude and harsh to talk about these kinds of things that we would just push away from. We, We don't have any time for that kind of discussion about these things. But these things matter so we, won't, we will not actually be basing our doctrine at this church on popular opinion or, or vote in that sense. The doctrine comes to us from the word. At Basswood, we believe in biblical order both in our homes and in the church itself. And we want God to tell us how things work best. So let me be clear just so that you're not confused about what I'm saying. We don't, we don't want to add anything extra to what this says. And we don't want to take anything away from what this says. Amen? We, we want exactly what the Bible gives us to be our boundaries. And so we we are not going to promote a climate where women are seen as second-class Christians or second-class human beings. Sisters, you are equal image bearers in in God. You you are absolutely bought by the blood of the Lamb. You are gifted for service in the body. None of this messes with any of that, right? So we're not, we're not going to promote any climate that is like that. And in fact, if, if there are men in this room who would use a verse like that to be harsh and, and maybe even cruel or even to, to sort of hide abuse in their own life, we would call you to repent. And if you wouldn't, we would discipline you. This is, this is serious, right? So we don't, we don't take this and twist it into something that it is not. But we also don't ignore what it says. We we don't don't walk away and say, well, we don't have to do that. No, we want what it says because we want everything God has for us. So we're not going to ignore the plain teaching of the text. Leadership and the, the, the public teaching of the gathered assembly are set apart by God, by his design for men, for called, qualified men who are accountable. And that's for God's glory. And that's for our good. And his design is a cause for joy. 
not bitter grumbling. And so we don't want to find ways around God's design. We want to embrace it and love it. So the Lord gets to organize his church. And by his design, he has set apart the function of shepherding the church to called, qualified, and accountable men. Now, I mentioned the word plurality. I'm going to give you this as our fourth principle, kind of as a separate and aside. Plurality is expected throughout the Bible. It's an interesting thing. If you worked your way through the New Testament, I'm going to give you, don't try to write these down. It's too many. I'm going to give you a long list, but I'm going to blow through it of verses in the Bible where this interesting thing happens. And then I'll tell you what the interesting thing is. Acts 11, 30, Acts 14, 23, Acts 15, 2, 4, 6, 22, 23, Acts 16, 4, Acts 20, 17, Acts Acts, uh, 21, 18, Philemon 1 1, 1 Timothy 5 17, Titus 1 5, James 4 or 5 14, 1 Peter 5 1 and 2, all have this plural elders, singular church. <laughs> all those passages, you find plural elders at a singular church. It turns out the pattern in the Bible repeatedly is not the CEO, rock star, single pastor running the show, it's a plurality of called men serving the body. So you find a plurality of men at a single location serving the body well in that way. A godly plurality is expected in Scripture. It's just anticipated that there's going to be more than one guy. Now, providence may decree that something happens and then you have to regroup and figure it out, but that's the normal pattern of the church is that we expect there to be a plurality of elders. And friends, you want that. <laughs> you, you want that. You, you don't want my strengths to be the only ones that you get, I promise. And you don't want my weaknesses to not be balanced by somebody who's not got weaknesses in that area. You want plurality as a church. In fact, looking through recent church history, without even calling to names people, you could probably think of churches where a pastor fell and there was not an actual plurality in place, where there was no leadership equality going on. But in fact, there was maybe one who was above all the others and really couldn't be critiqued in any sense. That so often precedes a fall in ministry. And so to protect against that, the Lord has given us this, this principle of a genuine plurality that's expected in Scripture. And in Basswood's history, in our church's history, we've had uh, several godly called qualified men who have served this body. Bug right there. Sorry, I got distracted. My ADD heart does that sometimes. I don't know if yours does. Maybe let's just let that be a lesson in itself. Uh, you can get distracted. I love at, in Basswood that I can look at the history of the, of the men who I've served with and say there have been so many godly, qualified men like Rick Lyles who have served and, and set the pace in such an admirable way where I know that I, I want to be the kind of shepherd that Rick was. I want to be that kind of man. And so we have been blessed as a body to have such a a kindness from the Lord where there have been over the generations just many called qualified men who has served this body. Well, let me give you two implications of those convictions, and then we're going to make a final application, and then we'll finish up. Two implications of these convictions. One is what the elders do. I just want to lay this out for you. So uh, what the elders do, if you, if you draw from the scriptures what you will find, particularly as you, as you work your way through the New Testament in the commands to elders and to the, the shepherds of churches, is that elders are to serve the church in prayer-filled, scripture-guided leadership. That's the role of an elder, to serve the church in prayer-filled and scripture-guided leadership. Biblical leadership is, is, is not accomplished at a church through uh, 
committee votes and secret back hall meetings and kind of pressure campaigns or anything like that, if you've experienced that at other churches, as I have, where there's some kind of shadow government that works behind the, the leadership of the church, kind of there's the leaders of the church and then there's like the people who make things happen. That's not the way God designed the church to work. That looks a lot more like politics in our culture than it does like the church of Jesus ought to look. So we want to be really clear that that's not the way it's going to work. Here, we're, we're, going to, we're going to work to be faithful to say that these men who are set apart for this task are called to lead. We're going to allow them to do that. In Acts chapter 6, you remember when, when it, it came to the attention that, uh, that there, were, there were people being overlooked and the, the elders were trying their best to serve everybody. There were, people being, there, there, were, there were people who were not getting fed when they should have. And they, they called together these men to serve kind of like in this role of like, hey, for us to be faithful to this church, what it means is we have to have time in order to read the word and pray. And if we can't do that, we can't serve you. So we're going to need others to come alongside and do this work of ministry. We need that to happen across the body so that the whole body can flourish. So we see that whether that, that ministry is pulpit ministry or whether it's personal ministry, it's always supposed to be word and prayer ministry. That's supposed to be a consistent. That passage I read at the very beginning from Acts chapter 20 where Paul is, is in, to, his, to this church that he loves, he is telling these men to take charge, to, to watch over this flock that he spent years with, that he loves so much, and he's, he's helping these men see the glory of their role. The first thing he says is pay attention to your life and to pay attention to theirs. Serve them well. Lead them well. Friends, if, if, if your elders are to pay attention to your life, we're going to need access to your life. Right? Like if you really want shepherding, it's going to be hard to do that if we never spend time together. So th there are things like lunch that serve more than one purpose. We want fellowship, right? Amen. And we love the food. Thank you. It's great. But we also, it, 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 when we're together on the Lord's Day, if there are ways we can serve you, if there are ways we can step in behind you, if there are ways that we can, can speak truth into your heart, like on a Sunday where your heart needs truth spoken, maybe there are people here today who are feeling weak and just worn out and they need somebody in this body to say something. We, we can't guess that, right? We, 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 won't, we don't have ESP. We won't know if we don't spend time together and if you're not willing to open your life up to us. And so I want to call you to do that because we want to pay attention. It's just sometimes hard if we never see each other. Well, they're also, 1 Peter 5 tells the pastors that they are to shepherd the flock of God. That picture in there is, is, is the one who, who is really caring for, making sure the feeding is happening, beating off the, the enemies who are coming to attack. It's protective. It is provisional. It is, it is giving everything that's needed. It's shepherding the flock of God. That's the call of the men who step in to be elders or who are called out to be elders there's a book written by Alexander Strauch. It's a pretty good book on biblical eldership. He sums up the role of elders this way. I can give you this quote later too. It's, it's very helpful to me. Elders, elders lead the church, teach and preach the word, protect the church from false teachers, exhort and admonish the saints in sound doctrine, visit the sick and pray, and judge doctrinal issues. In biblical terminologies, elders shepherd, oversee, lead, and care for the local church. And I'm summing all that up by saying elders lead the church. And if all that's true, then one final implication is this. It's not popular in our day, but it is absolutely true. Scripture calls all of us to submit to our elders, right? It's a difficult and unpopular position to talk about submission, but it doesn't make it unbiblical. And we're all called to it, including the elders submitting to one another as elders. So I have elder, right? 
Like they're, they're, Rick was my elder, Ronnie is my elder, and they speak into my life with authority. So we submit to our elders. Submission is a protective thing. It is biblical. It is meant to be a blessing to us. The Bible speaks of it plainly, and I'm gonna give you several passages. First Thessalonians 5. Paul writes, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. So you give them honor, even as they're admonishing you to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Hebrews 13, chapter seven, remember your leaders, literally, those who rule over you. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Hebrews 13, 17 makes it as plain as any passage in the Bible. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. First Peter 5, which I mentioned before, says shepherd the flock and then he later says exercising oversight. There's a, a genuine attitude presumed here from the Bible that, that Christians will say to their pastors and their shepherds, I, I, I want to be led. I, I want that. And the, 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 that really does lead us to the end of that question, who is God gonna hold to account for the direction of a church according to the word? And we come to the conclusion that it is the elders of that church. They will face a, a, an accountability for their actions as elders. We believe that the Bible teaches us that there is real spiritual responsibility entrusted to the elders of a church. So those are the principles that form our theology that's behind the way that we do it. The, the, the Lord is our authority. He instructs us to set in place a plurality of called, qualified uh, men to lead the church. Elders are, are set apart for direction setting, word and prayer ministry in the body. What does that mean for you practically? Well, let me give you just a couple of things that it doesn't mean, and then I'll give you two big things that it does. A, a few things that it doesn't mean is that, that we're saying that elders are without sin. Please do not make the mistake of thinking there's any implication in there the elders are without sin. In fact, elders should not pretend to be without sin. It's not helpful to you at all. It's not helpful to you to think that we have better lives or some kind of more, more access to Jesus than you've got. That's not helpful to you, and it's not true either. We are all coming through the same Savior and all with the same amount of need. We all need him. So covenant members shouldn't, shouldn't be shocked if there's a, 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 a week that we are weak, <laughs> where, where we need you to carry us along. That should not be a shock to you. In fact, you should be ready for that because we are just like you in so many ways. Elders are also not dictators. This is not what it means. They're not, they're not the boss of the church. Uh, it is a role for those who want to be servants, not those who want to take the high place. And also uh, at Basswood, we wanna make plain that being an elder is not something like we make the unilateral decisions. In the same way that a family works best when people communicate with each other, a church does too. It's, it's not different. Like we, we, we will make decisions. We, we will make decisions. And we need to hear from the body to make well-rounded decisions, to make decisions that help the, the body actually. So what does this mean for you as a covenant member if you are of Basswood Church, knowing that Basswood is an elder-led church? What does that mean? The first thing you need to know, really practically, we're not gonna vote much. <laughs> we vote infrequently. That is not the way that we decide a lot at our church. If what you want is a monthly opportunity to vote your opinion into the record, you're really gonna be disappointed and you should probably let somebody else have your parking space. Like this is not, this is not the way we're gonna do church is that everything in here is gonna come up for a vote every time 
time we get together. We don't think that's effective. We don't think that's biblical. That's not the pattern that we see when we see godly men leading a church is that everything they do, they gotta turn around and say, what, if, we, if we ever got carpet, what color do y'all want? And can we fight over it? Let's have a vote every Wednesday night to make sure that happens, right? That, we think that's a pretty bad pattern. Um, and so we want you to know up front that that's not our pattern. There are four times given in our constitution that we are gonna ask for the congregation's involvement and affirmation of what's going on. The first is when we add any new elder to the church. The church, the, the elders that are will bring the elder before you as a, somebody we think the Lord has called to serve this, this church in that way. And the, the body will be asked to pray over it for several weeks to consider the qualifications given to us in First Timothy and Titus. And if this is such a one as meets those qualifications to then join us in affirming them as a leader in our midst. The same thing with deacons as we find new servants to serve the body. Uh, we call for a vote of the church to affirm and install deacons. So installing elders, installing deacons, any change to the constitution itself has to be voted on by the covenant members of Basswood Church. If we're gonna change the founding documents of the church, the whole church needs to be in agreement that that's gonna happen. And then the final thing is, any other time we think it would be helpful to the church to take a vote, right? So there's that category like that. When we left 3108 Basswood Road, some of you wonder like, why is their name Basswood Church? Because that's where, that's the street we were on where our church was, right? So when we left 3108 Basswood Road, we voted before we left. We thought it might be of use to the congregation to, to get everybody together and say, don't you think now that we can't fit in this building anymore that we ought to go somewhere else and figure it out. And so the church affirmed that. And so it can be any other time. So we don't Vote often, and we think to serve. Uh, we think that actually serves us well. But let me tell you, that statement I made about communication is actually one way you can consider yourself very involved in the ministry of the church. Because we will come to people and ask for direction. We will look for uh, where the Lord has you on a particular subject. We'll ask for input on things, and we we really value that. And that leads to the second conclusion: elders need frequent prayer, honest communication, and joyful support. We need that from you, friends. We need that from you. We need to hear from you. You have direct access to your leaders at this church. You don't have to like work your way through our assistant. Our phone numbers are public. Our email addresses are public. You can reach out to us anytime you want. Um, and so, you, so we, are, we are your servants and we want honest communication from you. Now, if you are bent in the Eeyore direction, you know what I'm talking about? If your spiritual gift is complaining, I thought we left you at the last building, but... I invited you to stay at the last building, but if that's your spiritual gift, you may just take a note. What I'm not saying when I say my phone number is public domain is that I want to know every time you didn't like the song we sang or something like that. that you, you, can, you can let me know if we sing something you hate over and over and over for two years or something like that. You, you come tell me and we'll talk about it. But what, 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 we don't want to foster complaining, but we do want access. We want you to feel like you can come to us at any point and you can. We are your shepherds. All right. I'm moving quickly, I promise. Uh, also, we want, so we want honest communication. We need you to pray for us. We need frequent prayer friends. I, I, we, we need you to pray for us, for our service to you. We need you to pray for the life of our families. I, I've still got children in my home who don't yet know the Lord. Like we, we need you to pray for us. So if you want this church to flourish, pray for her leaders. You need to be praying for those who serve you. We, 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 we need you to ask the Lord for times and seasons of refreshing, for provision for our needs, for family things that happen just like they happen in your house. We need you to be in prayer for us. So be praying. And also we need your joyful encouragement and support in the same way that joyful encouragement and support blesses you in your home. It's also a blessing to us as we serve in the church. So your leaders need frequent prayer, honest communication, and joyful 
um, joyful support in the church. Well, we opened our discussion with two different kinds of leaders. One who put himself last to be sure that others were cared for and one who ignored the needs of others and focused on himself. Let me just affirm one last time that the model of every good leader begins with Jesus Christ who emptied himself, who emptied himself and gave himself out of love to his people. God intends this church, his church, and your home and your, your whole life to be marked by the sacrificial love that Jesus has shown us. So if you want to see what biblical leadership looks like, friends, I just want to encourage you, first, look to Christ. Let's pray together. Almighty God, you have loved us with an everlasting love. You have given your son who leads us as a good shepherd. We, we thank you, Jesus, for laying down your life for us. And we cry out, Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. Much we need thy tender care. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.